The Mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable. Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with Mayfly soon. And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tire, Jackie Mann. If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes. If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you. Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. This is a first for us this week as myself and Tom find out about catching mullet on the fly. It's a fish known as the Irish bonefish and not one that has been targeted a great deal, but maybe that's about to change. After all, if you're like our next guest, West Cork guide and angler David Norman, you could be landing five mullet on the fly in a single session in February on your five weight. If you're interested, stay tuned as David explains how and where to target the mullet in Irish waters. And Tom, it's very much a fish that has gone under the radar here in Ireland, isn't it? Yeah, good man, Dara. Yeah, it, it really is. And like, um, I was delighted when you were saying we come up with this one because um, it's 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 a species that I really wanted to find out more about. I like, touch on it there with David because I remember when I when I used to live in Galway when I was in college in Galway of looking at, at the mullet and the shoals of mullet and really wanted to find out more about catching them. I remember at that time, because that's a while back now, but I was, now I was under the, the illusion that they couldn't be caught or under the, the belief, not illusion, but the belief that they couldn't be caught. And then a couple of years later, as I said, talk to guys. I remember first hearing about the Irish bonefish about, about 10 or 12 years ago and that, you know, that they could be caught. And then now, now we're at the next step. We're chatting to David. It's it's fascinating. It really is fascinating to hear him talking about it and how he targets them, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's look, it's like any of these fish that you know you have to put the, the you know David puts the errors in and the time in, and you know that's why we're speaking to people like David. And I know Richie Ryan has spoken about catching them as well. And well, I I think what really kind of appealed to me about it is I always like the idea of catching fish like that kind of in the early season you know it's it's not something you associate with you know in a february you know casting a, a fly rod on the salt like you know and that's i love that idea of it yeah i mean th- this has been a real eye-opener for me too i mean like i i would have always thought oh mullet you're, you're out in midsummer yeah and you know i mean poor john david at five there last week you know in in february uh yeah and it just it's something else you could do and so it's another species you can target. And, and then talking to him, the ease of it, like the, the, I, I asked him there, like, you know, when he was talking about some of them, like, oh, you have to be in the kayak. And he's go, and goes, no, no, no. You, you you know, you can just go to the estuaries and, you know, walk within reason. It's interesting to hear him talk about it as well. Like, um, you know, you can't be jumping up and down and running around after them either. To me, it just opens up another world of uh, of interest um, in terms of fly fishing and, and, and species that you can get. Um, how's the fish? Actually, how's the season been? You were out. I was actually uh, was boating there at the weekend and uh, it's tough going. We had a couple of fish on the fly, which is great. Um, but Stuart With clients, Nevin, was it? Yeah, Stuart and Evan McMicken were out from Athlone. Evan is double qualified on the youth teams. The series fishing for them. Um in the World Youths out in Bosnia, and he's fishing in their home internationals in Linkuedog over in Wales. So, um, yeah, it was great to have him out. And um, he, got a, he got a cracking fish there in the evening, which was great. So, that's tough going. February, is, as I've said, it's always tough. Uh, we got about, we got, I think it was five chances for the day, and we nailed two of them we got, uh, and, and bolted two of them. There we go. Nice dumps to throw. So, yeah, that's it. So, look, um, very mild at the moment. There's a bit of cold weather forecast, though. It, it has been mild, hasn't it? Like that's yeah. Like, that's what I was going to ask really you. Out in the lake was it? It was nice. Must have been nice being out. Like yeah, that. water temperature is seven and a half degrees for this time of year is higher than normal. I've been out fishing in five and six, which is that bit um, uh, slower. Of course, that was mask actually. So and mask is always that bit colder than carb as well. The day we were out in carb, we ate so many steaks and things. There was no temperature of the water taken. There was <laughs> um, twelve of us in the hut, and we had eighteen steaks. Uh, peppers, onions, scallions, mushrooms, uh, fried potatoes. It was a veritable feast. 
And we got into the house at one o'clock and we left the house at 20 to five and everybody went home. Yeah. Oh, great <laughs> what, what vision? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was out myself recently, um, bike fishing and lakes in Clare. Oh, yeah. Um, we're in East Clare uh, there, is it? Yeah. Um, Which one? Uh, we I, we were fishing uh, Drumorlock, uh, Drumore Nature. Oh, yeah. Lovely. Yeah. The first time, again, I've always wanted to fish um, the lakes of Clare. I've pike fished on, on um, Derg and in the Midlands, but I've never done it in Clare and was on the fly. And it was, uh, yeah, it was good cracking out. It was. And enjoy. Uh, small jack, like, and the yeah, other fella great. had um, uh, probably a five pounder, but it was, uh, a, it was, been, it was my first time out this year, just being Excellent, out in the water. Yeah. Casting the fly rod. Um, condi- it was funny, actually. It just shows you how the conditions, like, so, you know, the, the, it was very mild. And then as soon as we got out into the lake, the breeze, gusting wind, it was bloody tough trying to get proper drift. And, like, we were struggling just getting the drifts going, you know, and trying to find, I was like, I was just thinking of yourself, Tom, going, yes, yeah, there's a bit more to this boat and larking. Telling <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. All ground, all ground, and you're on... Firm ground and under your feet. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. And particularly if it gets squally or anything at all, it's just, it can be a nightmare. It's like what we're saying, and we discuss it later. It's another variable. Don't mention <laughs> the variables. <laughs> those, those lakes are lovely. Dromore Lake is is fantastic. Beautiful looking lake. I tell you, you, really could spend a, you could spend a lifetime fishing in Clare, and it's really underrated, isn't it? Like, mm. oh, we have to do an episode on that. Yep. There's another one now. <laughs> Another one to do. <laughs> but look, let's turn our attention back now to Mullet on the Fly with David Norman. And I first asked him about targeting Mullet on the Fly in early season. Yeah, so they are really considered a summer species, the same as bass. Um, but, uh, you know, when we're, we're playing, playing coast, paying close attention to the coast as we do, you know, we notice that they arrive here very early in the year. Uh, February could even be January. So, um, and, um, you know, it's just gone on from there that, uh, you know, we found that we can target them successfully. And tell me this, when did you, like, was it a recent thing for you the last few years that you kind of started specifically targeting them early in the year? Targeting them early in the year, but they've been part of my life, my angling life since almost the beginning. I caught my first when I was nine. I've, I've always lived on an estuary. I've always holidayed by chance to... Um, an area that was at, at the time one of the, the you know, one of the real mullet strongholds of the south coast of England, um, and, and here they are again. And I, I love estuaries. I spend a lot of time in estuaries, and um, so do mullet. I think it's worthwhile, Tom. Probably, maybe if we go delve a little bit into the species in terms of just so people know a bit about them and the different types and what where you know what exists around the Irish waters as well. Yeah, I think we need to. So um, there's three main species um inshore species that we have we have thick lips thin lips and golden greys but generally speaking when people are talking about mullet they're normally talking about the thick lips which are the the bigger of the three species so um when i say bigger a specimen size thick lip mullet in ireland is five pounds uh and the irish record is just under 10 so they're big fish um the uk record is 14 believe it or not um, they're extremely slow growing, the same as bass, um, but they're considered to be a really difficult species to target. And that's mainly because they're, they're designed to feed or they've evolved to feed on um, kind of really microscopic uh, food sources. They're what you might call a, a filter feeder. So um, their mouths, their digestive system will not ha- handle large objects. So that rules out a lot of uh, a lot of things that you might try and target. I don't know them, David. Do, do they have teeth? No, they have the most unusual shaped mouths. Um, yeah, that actually actually forms a mark in the mud as they're filtering along. You get these two horizontal parallel lines in the mud uh, as they come down and scoop up. And um, fun mullet fact: uh, apparently, they can they can take in grains of sand uh, and remove the algae from the sand and reject the sand. Um, uh, who, who proved that? I don't know. But <laughs> um, so that's the kind of thing. So they will feed on the feed on and certain types of very very fine weed, um, uh, uh, shrimps, minute shrimps, uh, up to maggot. 
they will feed on maggot um but it's really and of course bread which is our you know our uh, best weapon uh, in terms of targeting them uh, can i ask a question <laughs> sorry this is a bit off topic <laughs> i'm just back from lanzarote right and um <laughs> i was on the co- I, I know bear with me a second um there was along the coast there like just even in the beach there was just fish everywhere in the water around your ankles and I, I don't know what they were right you oh, might be able to feel me there were different types of silver white silver type fish and it was bread all the time so if you I, I could literally stand there in the water and just I just would take a crust of bread and just start sprinkling into the water and they would come in their hordes yeah. I nearly managed to get them to actually take it from my hand yeah. So I would literally hold it in my finger and just, and I tried, every, I tried all different things. I tried whatever I had in my lunch. I had crisps. I, yeah. <laughs> everything. What is it about bread? Can I ask that? They just yeah. go nuts for so it. It kind of goes back to their digestive system, as I say, that they can't really cope with anything much bigger than that. Um, it's something that's abundant. So mullet, you know, they're, they're pretty smart. Um, now you're seeing them there in huge numbers in, in warm water, which they like. Um but to delve a bit into bit, bit deeper into uh, the Irish mullet, they they differ in behaviour from estuary to estuary. So in some in in some estuaries they're they're interested in bread, in some they're not. In some some bays and areas they'll be interested in maggots, and some they're not. So they, you get this localised behaviour, which suggests the fishing are coming back to um, pretty much the same areas in in the same shoals each year. Again, similar to bass. Um, mm. So um, yes, they love warm water, and there's there's one or two different species around the Mediterranean as well. But that's that's what you're seeing going on down there. But unfortunately, Irish mullet aren't quite as friendly as the ones you met. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, and yeah. I'm raging. I didn't bring the the rod, the fly rod, because I have a little travel rod. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, did you like, not? Ah, God. <laughs> long, long again. Long story. Oh, okay. Um, give, me, give me a shout before you go back, and I'll set you up. Oh, I tell you, I would just like the potential. For Lanzarote, when you see the the rocks and the surf and the yeah. and then even David the kayaking and I will get into the kayaking a little bit with you just talk about the season, but the coastline in terms of I was just like because even when I was looking online to see if there was any guys that did fly fishing trips guiding out there, nothing, and mm-hmm. even just information on like fly fishing around there there was nothing like pretty much nothing. I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah, totally untapped. Yeah. Um, Absolutely untapped. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. And the species that they'd have out there, and um, very easy to get to. I mean, fantastic yeah. fishing destination. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, you, you won't make that mistake again. No, no. Yeah. I tell you, David, if, if you're looking to go to warmer climes, I tell you, that's oh, yeah. Also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't help but notice one thing you said there, David. I picked up on immediately. You said Irish mullet aren't as friendly, so. I have heard they spook easily. Is that the way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and this is part of the problem. I mean, it's extremely visual form of fishing, which sometimes I think can make it worse. So that um, you know, they're, 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 so there's a couple of other names which might help it sort of explain this a bit better. One would be um, the UK bonefish, uh, UK and Irish bonefish, because yeah, they look. I've, a little heard, bit I've similar. heard them. I've heard them described as the Irish bonefish. Yeah, the Irish bonefish, and. Yeah. Um, and that's basically because they fight as hard. But another one you might not have heard is uh, grey ghosts. And that's really because have, yeah. if if you start to cause too much disturbance, they, they might they might panic and sprint off like any normal fish. But quite often they'll just drift away from you. You won't even see them go. They'll just be gone, you know. They just have this ability. They're such a grey... Uh, if I could just describe them to people who haven't seen them, I mean, they're an extremely... I know all fish are streamlined, but these are a particularly streamlined fish. They're, they're particularly grey in colour. Um, they have quite a large tail fin, which obviously helps them fight the way they do. Um, and uh, as I say, these rather strange-shaped mouths. And um, But no, I mean, I don't think you'll be hand-feeding Irish mullet. <laughs> I, I used to it. watch them. It's funny that you say that, because when I was in college in Galway, there was a bay there beside where I lived, um, Locatolia, there. Yeah, no, I, 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 is that where the swans are? Yeah, right. And I used to, I because uh, I always lived on that side of town, and I used to walk down to Lockatolia and just watch them. And it's funny you're saying the size of them. They're definitely there were fish in some of the pods that I saw there. There were seven and eight pounds, 
Yeah. I just, they used to go around in huge shows and I just used to look at them. It was always on my to-do list. Yeah. To bring in um, flyer. I never did. I yeah. never did. And it was always yeah. been, God, I must go back there. But I, I couldn't get over them. And it's funny, you know, I've asked you, were they spooky? But my recollection of them were, yeah, they were even spooky of me standing on the on the shoreline. Yeah. You know, and Absolutely. it's what you say, the grey ghost. I would stand on the shoreline and suddenly they would all, suddenly they go off, but they wouldn't come near me. They're very susceptible to movement as well. If you're, I know with any fishing situation, but if you're silhouetted, then they, they just see that movement. And I know like where I'm hidden, if they see the movement of my rod even, that's enough for them to just drift away. They may not panic, but they'll just drift away from you. Um, um, but, this is a big but, if they become preoccupied with feeding, especially if it's on natural materials, like someone said to me, you can almost walk across the backs of them. So, you know, there are opportunities. Fly fishing, the fly setup would lend itself, you would think, to mullet because they're that spooky and they need the kind of gentle approach and it's an ideal yeah. way of targeting yeah. them, isn't it? Like, yeah, definitely. I mean, I suppose range, people use like bombarded floats and all sorts of things to fish at range for them, with ledger for them, um, you know, because of this spookiness. So you have you have got the challenge of presenting something to them without spooking them, of course. So, but yeah, yeah, arguably fly makes a lot of sense. Even like I'm wondering up to now is kind of people just because they were so hard to catch, you know, that people didn't target them specifically. Mm. But now maybe the more people kind of learn about it and the intricacies and how to actually do it, that I suppose twofold. One is maybe you'll actually get more people trying it, but then also we'll hopefully maybe it'll raise awareness of the fish as a species as well. You yeah. know, we'll have more appreciation of it, I think. It, it would be great to, to dream of a time where they have a bit of legal protection and um, um, and people appreciate them a bit more. I mean, they're such an underrated fish. They really are. Mm. You caught five last week, was it, David? Yeah, um, but I've only done one trip this year so far as well. Um, but that's a good, and this is what I like about breadfly. If the conditions are right um, and everything lines up, then that's the sort of day you can have. And if it's if it's not the right sort of day, and if you don't fish very well, um, or if things just don't work out, um, you could blank. So the you know the average trip is somewhere in between. And to me, that's kind of a a reasonable return for my efforts. Now, obviously, I'm doing a lot of it, so you might have to throttle that back a bit. Um, mm. But, you know, the chance of a fish or two, if you do everything right and things line up, is to me, it's about, you know, a reasonable level of challenge, isn't it? And what size were the fish you got? That one that you saw the photo of, I'm actually I'm actually going to start weighing some of the bigger ones, but I definitely <laughs> think it was over six. Oh, nice. Pass. Yeah. Um, I've, I've had one or two, I think, I think we're getting on for seven, but it, I, uh, I I don't know until I weigh them. And 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 in terms of how do you do go about targeting them? Do you have to go about a different way in terms of like early season versus summer season, like this time of year? Like how how do you yeah. approach them when they're so so spooky? Yeah. So I mean, first of all, it's finding them. Um, so they tend to move. They they, they move um, in and around the estuaries. Um, so you have to put in the time to work out like on a, on a certain tide and wind direction, where are they likely to be? And doing what I do and living where I do, you know, I get the time to go and do that. So, you know, I will go day after day, even when the fishing conditions aren't right. And, you know, over time I've built up um, uh, a, a pattern of movement for these fish. So then, um, you know, it's, it, it's a case of, you know, where, how and where can I present a bait to them? You know, and it's like any form of fishing, you just build up, certain strategies that, 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 you know, should be successful on the right day, you know. Early season, the numbers, they're only just starting to grow. Is it like in terms of kind of the numbers that are coming in? Like, so it's, is it that bit harder earlier in the season? Or No, you see, they could all arrive en masse. You could get a shoal of 200 to suddenly arrive. Wow. And, um, yeah. yeah, and they can disappear just as quickly uh, en masse. But as the, as the weather warms up, they tend to stay for longer. Um, and, and, you know, it's easier to kind of find them. And, um, I mean, what really, what they're doing is they go on this kind of daily commute where they're, they're looking to get into the most shallow areas of the estuary they can to do this filter feeding, um, on anything that's possibly, uh, them small life forms that haven't, hasn't managed to hide itself as the tide floods in. Um, so they're in the stickiest, muddiest parts of the estuaries. Um, and, um, in, in the wide open. So 
again, you know, it, it's tricky. You're looking at, and we just touched on it there earlier on, are you looking at, like, targeting these with kayaks? I have done. Yeah, so it's, it's not... quite possible to do from the shore, but, like, is it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely, yeah. But you need to know where where to get in and out of the estuary and where it's going to be firm, where it's going to be soft. Um, you know, they, 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 you know um, just basically points where fish might stop for a while on this this commute of the tides that they do. Right. And um, as I say, every estuary is different. So, you know, you just need to put a bit of time in and um, see what they're like. And they are out on the open coast as well. Um, it's just that we have more access to them in the estuaries. And um, as I say, they do, they do like to spend here, like, a lot of time there. For example, when they're in estuaries, will they remain there like moving in circles or will they, will they stay there longer? It sounds they're like what you're saying there is probably easier to target them in an estuary than it would be on open coastline. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're constantly moving, as is the tides. And, you know, it's just a very dynamic environment. Um, the tides are flooding in, they're coming in, they're feeding. Um, you know, they may drop out completely. Um, it all depends how big the tide is, how much water is left in the estuary. Like a lot of things, the tide's going to play a huge role in us. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. And there's all these complexities. And that's, and that's that you... one thing that catches me, a freshwater landlubber. Yeah, the you variables, know? the variables. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. what um, then, for example, like, is a rising tide better or is it yeah, is when the tide is flowing in the best time to target an estuary? Yeah, it could be. Um, they will hold up on a dropping tide as well. But the, the, I think, as I say, the key thing to think about is that they want to get into the shallowest water they can, because that's where, the, the, you know, the, the rich, the, the richest nutrients are. Um, so that's that, you know, that's the key time, um, you know, and then we can we can sometimes successfully target them when they're just milling around um you'll see a lot of surface activity from mullet and i I've, I've, in my own head i try and um determine whether they're they're, they're feeding or frolicking so they nice. do a lot of frolicking they do a lot yeah. of social stuff and they'll, they'll do a lot of coming clean out of the water for no apparent reason um it's quite a visual spectacle to be honest so i take it at this stage then you'd have a fair idea when they're frolicking as opposed to feeding. Yeah. And part of that is just by testing them, you know, I mean, we're, you know, we, we are predominantly um, fishing with a bread fly for them um, is by far the more, the more reliable method, um, especially, you know, considering everything I've said about them. Um, I do fish for them with natural patterns as well. I get a few each year on those, but, you know, I haven't really established the uh, reliability with, uh, with that, but that's, that's very much a possibility as well. Once given patterns, a guy from the North and, it was like a micro, a micro salmon fly. It was, on a, it was dressed on a treble. It was very small treble, uh, like a, a small shrimp fa uh, salmon fly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these would be the sort of the, um, the micro shrimps that I was talking to you about. Right. So then, like, already we're seeing this. <laughs> there's quite an array of flies that you can be using for them. You're talking your bread fly, shrimp flies. Your, would you use maggot flies as well? Yeah, yeah, that can work definitely. Um, yes, if you can find um, if you can find uh, huge piles of rotting seaweed, where the um, I think it's the sand fly um, lay their eggs, um, nice. as the as the weed decomposes, uh, the the eggs hatch into maggots and combine with the spring tide, a big spring tide and a light offshore wind. Uh, this hatch, if you like, of maggots floating out across the surface, and in some areas, the mullet will absolutely hoover them up. Um, wow. And uh, you, all you'll see is mouths up on the surface, just sucking them down. That sounds fantastic. And so, would it be like what I know? Would it be like, let's say, with trout? If you presented a bread fly to them, they won't look at it because they want a maggot fly. I think so. In that situation, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think I don't think they'd be much interested, but. Um, uh, yes, no, in the absence of that, and um, um, the bread fly does a very, very similar job. Can I ask, um, you know, when they're in that feeding frenzy, David, then do they spook less? So, yeah, they spook less. You still have to, um, you still have to be careful and, you know, keep your move, you know, try and obscure yourself. And, um, but, um, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're surprisingly not line shy. You can cast straight into the top of them. And, you know, if they're fixated on food, they're not really bothered. They'll they'll swim around. They don't seem to be too concerned about fly lines or, um, I mean, we fish pretty light for them, but uh, 
I suppose they they spend a lot of their time in harbours and maybe they're used to seeing ropes going out to boats and and, and such like. So, um, yeah, that's one thing we have in our favour. And and so where you're casting when you see them, say, feeding there, that's the ideal, obviously, conditions when they're kind of less spooky like that and they're in the middle of a feeding frenzy. Where are you casting? Are you casting just kind of out on the edge of it or are you saying it doesn't matter if you put it in amongst them? Right? Yeah, I'll cast straight into the middle of them, yeah. You see, I'm fishing pretty light. I'm using a five weight, uh, some uh, a monofilament line that's going to float, and then a short length of uh, fluorocarbon tippet, um, about six six eight pounds, something like that. On a floater, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With a little, uh, I have a little indicator up the line as well. In fact, Richie Rahm was very kind enough to show me his setup a few years ago, and I fish a variation of that. Of course, because Richie likes to target them as well, doesn't he? Like he does, yeah. Yeah. Does, yeah. Tell me, is it growing in popularity with anglers in terms of um, just a different type of species to target or early season targeting? Or Well, there's been uh, one or two guys in the UK, Colin McLeod in particular, yeah. who's, who's yeah. put in, yeah, who's really, really put the time in with these. In fact, he's got an excellent book, coincidentally named Mullet on the Mullet Fly, on the fly yeah. by Colin McLeod. <laughs> and um, I think at the moment, that's probably the Bible. Um, so if anyone's really interested, that's 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 essential reading. Um, so let's sorry. say if somebody was let's say if somebody was thinking of taking it up, you'd recommend that that's a good book to pick up to help you just traipsing around the, the estuaries around Ireland. Well, you're still going to have to traipse around the estuaries, but the book will help. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know some of the best fish I've heard caught have been caught in people's living rooms. <laughs> or pubs, I thought. Tom. <laughs> pubs, right. actually, bar stools. Bar stools. Well, unfortunately, a lot of fish have ended up in people's living rooms and on bar stools. But <laughs> that's actually yeah. a, maybe a good time to mention that um, these mullet have absolutely no legal protection. Yes, tell us um, a little bit about that. I was very nice. surprised when you mentioned that to me. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an unlike unlike bass. So they're, they're very slow growing, the same as bass. But uh, unlike bass, there's no legal protection for them whatsoever. And, you know, it makes them very vulnerable if they're running estuaries all the time. Um, now, they're not considered really a food species, which is probably why they're still so abundant. Mm. Um, they have a bit of a reputation for hanging around sewage treatment plants and such like. Um, so you'd want to be very careful if you kept one. But one fish uh, I did try, I kept a fish once and uh, I actually thought it tasted better than bass. Um oh. But you know you'd eat them at your at your own risk, really. At your peril. But, but back to yeah. the yeah, back to the lack of protection. Um, so so you'd think, well, you know, if they're no good as a food species, why would you want them? Um, as I understand it, I think they're kept um, to make trout pellets and and other st- such like uh, stuff to feed other other fish, um, whether it's fertilizer. I don't. I really don't know, but. They certainly, they are of some value to, you know, to some commercial uh, sectors. Um, there was a there was an episode outside the mouth of Cork Harbour a few years ago. Now this wasn't um, this wasn't done on purpose, my understanding, but apparently there was um, there was a trawler or trawlers that noticed a massive um, biomass of fish under the water that they thought were sprat which could be around at that time of year. And what they didn't realise was that um, it was the enti- pretty much the entire stock of um, Cork Harbour mullet leaving on their annual migration, heading out to sea, and the nets were shot. And practically the whole population of um, Cork, uh, Cork Harbour mullet were hoovered up oh. accidentally. Bloody hell. Yeah. Oh. Uh, whoops, sorry. Um and you've just lost, you know, a, a, a stock of fish that could take 10 years or more to replace. Have they come back, like, in, in any kind of numbers? Since I don't the... know. I don't know. But um, there was certainly, there must have been enormous damage done to the local population, yeah. When you're talking about long living there, so let's say uh, a mullet, seven or eight pounds, like a, re- a specimen fish, let's say one is over five pounds, let's say six pound fish, how old would that be? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know exactly, but if we're comparing them to mullet, we know that uh, if we're comparing them to bass, we know that a 10-pound bass can be up to 20 years old. Right. So you kind of work backwards from that. The other thing is this, they, they don't, um, the, the, the mature um, adults don't necessarily spawn every year. So some go offshore to spawn, some don't. Actually, what is their cycle? When do they spawn? So they go offshore during the winter. I'm not sure exactly sure where they spawn or how they spawn. 
and then we start to see them. I mean, they can't be offshore for very long, but, you know, we don't know if we're seeing the whole population go offshore and come back or whether they're constantly coming or going. Um, but we do. When yeah. we see them here in around our shoreline and estuaries, they're not here to spawn. They're here feeding. Yeah, so far as I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can I ask you, David, do, do they, how far up do we know, or do you know in terms of the Irish coastline, are they like, are they like bass where they're limited by the temperature of the water? Yeah, I mean, I know they, they're, they're, they're extremely widespread. Um, they're definitely, they're definitely, I would say, in probably every estuary in the, in the Republic. And I'd be surprised if they're not in the north as well. Yeah, actually, the, the flies I got, oh, yeah, the shrimp flies I was telling you about are actually, uh, it was a guy, uh, it was, um, Leslie Holmes, he used to fish the, the ban estuary. Right. So yeah, they're obviously up there too. Yeah. Yeah. You just yeah, yeah. It was him who it was him who first mentioned Irish Irish bonefish to me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. When I heard that, that that kind of sets your pulse racing. All right. When you think of, it, you know. Yeah. I would say though, I would I would have a slightly different view on in terms of I would say Pollock would fight a hell of a lot harder than the mullet. Um, right. I'm, yeah. I mean, I can handle six six seven pound mullet uh, thick lip mullet. Um, on a five weight, you know, the, the, the setup I've suggested, you know, reasonably well. I mean, there's a lot of sort of stalemate situations because you're fishing pretty light for them. You, you can only put so much pressure on them, especially if they're in current. But, you know, I mean, there's pretty much only going to be one winner. Whereas if I take a six, seven, six, seven pound Pollock, uh, I mean, honestly, they'll they're, they're fight to the death. They're, 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 they'll, if I, if I hook a, a, a Pollock in, say, 50 feet of water that's just just above the kelp, you know, it's hook and hold. If you don't hold them, they're gone. Sayonara. Goodbye. I, 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 to illustrate that, I can tell you, and this might sound insane, that from the kayak, I'm using a 12-weight. That's right. Great. <laughs> I didn't realise that. Yeah. <laughs> I've blown up 10 weights. Just I've got it on video, just holding fish. The rod's just gone. Like, I, you know, just exploded. Well, actually, that's a nice segue. Um, I want to talk to you actually about, before we get into um, the season to come for you, um, how was 2022 for you? Because judging by your Instagram feed, there was a lot of Pollock, a lot of good Pollock as well. A lot of good Pollock, but a lot of good bass as well, Dara. Um, so I, I spent more time mullet fishing. So I started my uh, kayak campaign, if you will, a little bit later. Uh, I think probably around toward the end of April and that. That 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 went uh, that went quite well to, to to get going, and then as you may remember, we had those heat waves in the summer, yeah. and um, to my the, the the bass fishing from the shore was it was almost like turning turning the clock back for five yeah. years, maybe more. Yeah, um, yeah, I had some excellent shore fishing for bass. Everyone else said the same. There was a lot of small fish around, which is which is a good thing. But yeah. uh, was it daytime, David? You were going out. I tend to mainly fish at night, um, but uh, I got a seventy-eight centimeter bass at night from shore. Um, very similar to the experience that you and I had. Um, so that's well into double figures. Yeah, um, seventy-five is considered the, the seventy-four, seventy-five is considered specimen length. So seventy-eight is a good fish, and I had quite a few uh, up around that way. So. So that was excellent. Um, the heat was an absolute nightmare from from a kayaking point of view. Um, I actually cancelled trips due to good weather. <laughs> That's the first for Ireland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. So I need to change my strategy a little bit there. But um, I so talked, anyway, but actually, sorry, David. Just before you go on, talk to tell me a bit more about that. Why does the good weather? Because I, I, my impression always was like great weather on the coast. Happy days, out you go. Yeah. Why is it? Why is it bad? It was just becoming physically so uncomfortable, Dara, to be out there really? in the heat. There was not a breath of wind. You've got to you've got to be dressed in case you end up in the sea. Yeah. Um, you know. Actually, you what do you wear? Actually, just a nice way of answering. What do you wear when you're kayaking? Yeah. So the the gold standard is a dry suit, but they can yeah. cost more. They can cost more than the kayak. Mm. Um, you know, um, there's various impracticalities around them. So I'm wearing kayak specific uh, a wetsuit, a super light wetsuit. Um, and that's the best solution I've found so far. Um, but as I say, you can't be out there in shorts and T-shirt because if something goes wrong, yeah. it's, even in the height of summer, it's just a matter of time before you become a hypothermia statistic. Um, yeah, because so, a lot of people seem to think that kayaking is just T-shirt and shorts. Well, that's up to them, but I won't be out there in T-shirts and shorts. Yeah, no, no. I, mean, I, think it's, year, yeah. I think it's very good that you've said that because, you know, oh, people yeah. don't know and they just, you know, they imagine that, that you know, it's that, but, you know, the 
the the danger of hypothermia should you get in. I mean, it's it's always there. You yeah. know, but just to just to put it into context as well. I mean, if you're paddling around a little secluded bay in you know three or four feet of water and you're not going any further, then yeah, fine, shorts and t-shirt, yeah. no problem. But if you're doing what I'm doing, going like two miles down the coast and fishing under cliffs, <laughs> you've got to be prepared to whatever can go wrong. And um, you know, that's that's obviously near the top of the list. Like you said, so uncomfortable for people. Like in, it was getting so hot, like that you just couldn't bring people out. Like it was partly that, and it was partly the fact that during the day, I mean, it was so bright, um, and the water was so calm. I mean, it was terrible hunting conditions for a pollock. I mean, if you look at a pollock, you've seen the, the eye; it's absolutely massive. It's designed for low light conditions, and um, I mean, I put my camera down now into these kelpie areas and the rest of it. The water's crystal clear. Um, now, I don't think it's the heat that they're experiencing down there, but I just think it's really poor hunting conditions. So, you know, the evenings, I always think early mornings for bass, evenings for pollock. Um, so the evenings really um, would be a better time to be out there where it starts to cool down a bit and the light levels start to drop. But, um, you know, but then the, t- the tides don't always line up with that. So you were catching some very good double figure pollock, weren't you? I got one actually. I was talking to the IFI the other day. The 80 centimeter that I got, I didn't realize is actually a specimen size. Um, so that um, give or take should be around 12 pounds. Wow. Yeah. And nice. um, as I say, I think they outfight a pollock. And what weight raw did you catch that pollock on? Was that the 10? Yeah. I only, that was only 12. Unless I'm in an area where I'm, I'll be fishing for bass. Uh, and pollock and I think the pollock would probably be slightly smaller sort of shallower water well then I'd, I'd fish with a 10 weight but if I'm going into big pollock territory then it's it's a 12 weight 12 weight and actually just sorry but I, I'm always asking this what are you using what line are you using let's say when you're at the pollock so I'm using the fastest sinking line I can find right um, yeah. I'm trying to get a fly down to fish typically in about 50 feet of water right um, now they will track the fly up to almost up to the boat, um, and uh, and quite small clouses and stuff like that. Right. So it's fairly heavy metal stuff. Do you know oh, what yeah. I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But when you feel the power of those fish, mm. you know it, it's all justified. Does it take away? Like, is it a bit of effort in terms of you're getting the fly up to cast it again? You know, all that. Like, and it's a heavy line. Is it? Sorry, I'm not yeah, paying a good picture. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty heavy duty. Um, you know, to be honest, you can do as much or as little casting as you like because the fish are basically underneath you. And then, you know, it, it all kind of moves on from there. But there's a fair bit of sussing out to do with that as well. I mean, even I can't tell from looking whether I'm going to, you know, until I've actually gone and fished it um, and put the time in, you know, I still don't, I, I don't know where exactly where I'm going to find those fish. Um, it's a bit more easy to stand on the shore and look at the coastline and, you can map out where you like you to pick up bass and, you know, give or take, you're, you know, you're probably going to be not too far off. But it's really tricky to try and pinpoint where pollock are going to be. They can um, they can turn up in unusual spaces. And some of the best looking spaces have had too much angling pressure or commercial pressure or both. Mm. And they can be almost devoid of fish. So, yeah, that's uh, another variable in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. But like I say to people, and I'm doing workshops and stuff like that. I say to be like the conditions are changing by the second, right? Whether we right. can determine it, determine it or not, it's like light levels, wind speed, wind direction, tide, it just tide. This goes on. But isn't it also the, one of the reasons for the kayaking? It gives you that bit more, another option in terms of you can get away from the, from the shore a bit and oh, explore absolutely. areas. Yeah. Yeah. Get into areas you wouldn't normally get into, cover a lot more ground. Um, and it's just a fantastic experience. I mean, you've seen it just to be out there. Um, just even looking back at the coast is just, I just, I just love being yeah. out there, you know, and, um, and luckily it, um, you know, provides some pretty incredible fishing at times as well. So yeah. What was, was the bass fishing from, um, the shore? Was it as, it was daytime last year. Was it as good for, for anglers? Like, cause yeah. I know last few years, I know it had been getting, Difficult, like, but even daytime bass fishing was picked up, like. Yeah, I think generally across the board, there it was. Um, it was generally reckoned to be a very good season, but that doesn't mean to say like things are good in the world of bass. Um, mm. Like the IFI uh, issued a very interesting report on their studies, two years worth of studies um, that they did recently, and um, one of the things that um, 
they said was, look, there's a lot of young fish around, so that's good. But um, the bigger fish aren't surviving to, um, to, the, to the sizes that they should. So, you know, it's, um, I think we, get, we, had, we had a good summer because the conditions are good, but it doesn't mean to say that the, everything's well in the world of bass, you know. And, and do we, can we put our finger on why they're not surviving? Well, here's an interesting thing. We did, um, there's, there's, there's always been quite a lot of tagging going on. And as, you, as you'll know, there's no commercial fishing for bass in Irish waters. Um, most anglers are fishing catch and release. So the burning question is, where are the fish? Um, why are they not here in the numbers and the sizes that we hope they would be? Well, um, one very revealing tagging um, episode um, was reported from last year, I think it was, that a fish tagged in Wexford was caught by a commercial French boat off the coast of Brittany. So it, it, it shows you from that that they can move outside of our ju- jurisdiction to where they can be commercially retargeted. Um, but, but, you know, there could be a lot of other things going on. They... You know they're they're going to be they're going to be following uh, bait sources and 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 moving in relation to changing water temperatures and so on. You know it's really really hard to tell. But um, so on that like generally, I thought they they didn't go that far, was it? Like from the coast? Well, I suppose that tagging hmm. incident shows that the, they do. I mean, they, there was another yeah, there was another tagging. Um, I think it was a thermal tag that it, the fish tagged in Wexford. Something like when across to the southwest approaches of the the English Channel, which is where fish are hoovered up every autumn by by the commercials, the European commercials. Um, so it spent some time in that area, it then went down to Brittany again, back to Wexford. I mean, they can travel vast distances. Because that's the next question I have for you. Then is commercial fishing for them is not banned in. France, UK, is it or no? Ireland's the only country in Europe that that has no commercial bass fishery. So, on the one one hand, it's enlightened, but at the same time, do fishermen kind of feel like their hands are tied because suddenly all these French, English, whatever Spanish boats are kind of on the edge of the water of the the territory and are hoovering up the bass, like you said. Well, I suppose it, you know it's better that they're on the edge of the territory than in the territory. Yeah, the tagging is proving that they, they actually move a hell of a lot more than we think they do. You know, it's yeah, I mean that's just that's just one 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 uh, maybe not explanation, but that's just one one sort of theory that you know it is possible that they can be can, well. You know, where are they going if if if, yeah. if you know if we consider everything that's been said? So, has there ever been any moves afoot to try and force other countries to introduce a ban on commercial um, fishing for bass, or would that just be no way? Well, I suppose I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, to be honest, Dara. I mean, no, I don't know. Um, I mean, I suppose it's down to each individual country and how they how they feel about it. But um, I mean, don't forget, it's not no one's forcing Ireland to to have a, a, a no commercial take. It's, it was taken, you know, it was taken. The decision was taken by Ireland. To protect its, you know, its, its number one sport fish and its reputation as a sport fishing destination, you know. Once kind of um, April kicks in, is that do you kind of then just focus more now on the bass and pollock for the rest of the season? Is it or? Yeah, pretty much, and the pollock gets better right up until Christmas. If you can get out, see, we had a terrible autumn. Going back to twenty twenty two, we had a terrible autumn. I couldn't get out on the water for about six weeks, six or eight weeks, I think it was. It was just storms. Constantly, right. I, I managed to get out one for one week before December, and the fishing was just lights out. So I've pretty much got a nine-month season here. And this is—I'm fascinated by this as well—is um, the way the summers are going with the heat waves and the drought. And you know, I think the danger is that you know the rivers will be getting so low, you know, that salmon angling will become next to impossible over the summer in the coming years and future, and that as a result, people will naturally turn to the coast. Are you seeing any of that? Are you seeing kind of more of a turn to the, in the hotter conditions? People are heading out to the coastal waters to to try their hand. I haven't yet. I mean, I'm seeing the coast the, the coastline getting way busier now with tourists than it ever was. I mean, we had a couple of crazy years during lockdown, but that doesn't seem to have gone away. Um, I don't know. You know, I suppose Ireland's just becoming a busier place. But um, yeah, I mean, there's places you know I just have to avoid now in the middle of summer because I always have done to a point the real meccas, but you know, pretty most of the beaches now are, are becoming pretty busy in the summer. And, you know, with the, the road network down to these beaches and that, it wouldn't be the best and there wouldn't be that much parking. And so, you know, but luckily I can work around that. But, um, 
yeah, but uh, certainly generally busy. Whether whether we would be getting busy with Brizier with freshwater anglers, but I can certainly I can see what I can see what you're saying. But um, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Eh? Yeah, and, and yeah. Like, it's a real it's a real concern I have. Like when you look at the way, mm-hmm. like it's it's not like the conditions are going to go back. They're not going to reverse. Yeah, you know, they're going to deteriorate further. Um, yeah, and you know I can I can envisage it where rivers are just going to be closed and that's it. Like and. Yeah, it'll become grim. like the normal it's, it's it, that, prospect. Yeah. yeah, especially for yourselves. And that, that's why I was saying salt water is going to yeah. come yeah. a lot more uh, appealing to, yeah. to anglers in the summertime. Like um yeah. so David, in terms of um looking to the for if people are interested in you know getting out, um, you know, like a, I hope they've learned a bit about the mullet um for themselves to, to try their hand at, but if they wanted to do a bit of guiding for bass or bollock down in, in West Cork. To get in touch with yourself about it, yeah, absolutely. It's just uh, Angling Adventures West Cork, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, the website anglingadventures.angliadventureswestcork.ie. Uh, um, just Google out Angling Adventures and uh, Angling Adventures West Cork, and um, you'll find me. And um, yeah, get in touch. And everything is kind of a kind of a bespoke. I don't really have set trips. I have a general idea around a trip, and then you know, um, if someone gets in touch with me, then you know, we discuss what their angling background is. Um, what they're looking to do, and then I try and line them up with uh, the right set of tides that suits their dates, and we kind of build a trip that way, you know. So, um, and uh, yeah, and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It comes down to the variables, like, yeah, like, sounds excellent. Yeah, it's my job to narrow down the variables, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I yeah. tell you, it must be so frustrating for yourself, though, like, they, like because you're just. At the whim of the weather and the tides and everything, and oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, I've come to the conclusion: there's there's fishing and there's guidable fishing, and I don't know if you'd be the same <laughs> with this, Tom. Like, like my 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 trips, my planned trips have to have like a 80 percent in my head chance of success. That means seven or eight times out of ten, you know, we have a pretty good trip or an acceptable trip. Um, so you know. So, you know, I, I can't take people out on the off chance that we're going to catch something. You know, there has yeah. to be a, a, a pretty damn good chance that we're going to be successful and, you know, that we're going to have an enjoyable experience in comfortable conditions. And, um, you know, when it all comes together, those are the those are the trips we uh, we, we remember. Yeah, because that's what you're there for. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that, yeah, that, that, yeah. that raises the bar completely. Yeah, it? yeah, very much so. Um, yeah. Final question, David. I don't know if you had a chance to have a look. Um, we like to ask everybody their most memorable fish on, on the fly. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, um, I'm gonna, I've got a bit of a cheeky, cheeky answer for you here. I'm going to say any West Cork pollock. No, nah, no, no. Okay, now you got to give us some specifics now. Come on, come on, give us, give us yeah, one. Because that's just far too many memories. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. See, I'm not really from a fly fishing background. I've come to fly fishing quite late in life. Most of my sort of memorable fish or even lost fish would have been coarse fish or lure caught fish, so on and so forth. So, you know, I'm mean, I'm in that early stages, I suppose, really, and it's, it's pollock and mullet. I suppose you could say the first mullet I caught on a natural pattern was actually a thin lip mullet on a um, what was called a flexi worm, and. Um, that's a fly. That's one of Colin McLeod's flies, but I didn't even know Colin at the time. It was only through that capture that I met Colin. So, um, right. how's that? Is that all right? Okay, I'll let you away with that one. <laughs> but, but, okay. okay, give us one of your, give us your one of your most memorable ones, Cotton Lure. Yeah, we've done exceptions before, so we're doing okay. an exception again. Your most memorable fish. Okay, what about? Can it be a lost fish? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I played. And lost. I played a fish, a tench, on a lake in the southeast of England for three and a half hours. Ooh. And lost lost it at the net. Ooh. So so middle of winter, one pound tip it to you guys, but uh, uh, my, my final connection hook, size 32 hook, single maggot, put this fish. I just could put no pressure on it whatsoever. And the longer it went on, the more cautious I became. There was like hours of stalemates. The local, people from the local tackle shop came down. There was car lights on the water. I hooked this fish at four in the evening. Uh, it was dark. Um, I think the local newspaper was on standby. <laughs> and we finally got sight of this fish. And big, but it wasn't that big. 
and it, we got it to the net and it rolled over the net, gone. And at the oh. time, at, at the time, I was a young lad get, going fishing on, um, I was using the bus to get there, but I had so much gear. You know what course fishing is like? Yeah. Um, my dad would offer to come and um, uh, bring the stuff back on his motorbike because we didn't have a family car. So he, I had to explain to him at half seven on a Saturday evening, pitch black, that he had to get on his motorbike and travel the hour to the lake I was fishing at to pick my gear up. And I was telling him the story about the lost fish and he really wasn't interested. (laughs) (laughs) And you didn't even catch it. (laughs) No, I saw it and lost it. Yeah. (sighs) But three and a half hours, there's no exaggerating in that. What exaggeration in that? Four to half seven. Your arms and shoulders must have been. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. I could see why that's sticking your memory. Yeah. Yeah, I will. But, thank uh, God you went. Thank God you went to fly fishing instead. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. I don't <laughs> take any chances now. That's why I use a twelve weight. Twelve weight, yeah. <laughs> God, if you were playing something for t- three and a half hours on a twelve weight now, <laughs> well, that's, that's, you're talking tuna territory, aren't you? And we have big yeah. tuna here as well. But maybe that's yeah. another uh, episode. Ooh. Yeah, we're getting exotic now over here, like aren't we with our species? Well, that's my dream. Like, oh, we're getting that's exotic with mollusks. This is the upside. My, my dream upside of climate change is that we get more, um, say, small tuna species coming inshore. They are they are around, but they're, they're way offshore. But like you know, a lot of these Mediterranean species would be excellent sport fish. Um, so if one of two of those started cropping up over the next few years, you know, that, then yeah, I think everyone would be heading for the coast. Well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> David's West Cork Angling Adventures, where you'll be catching tuna, whatever you're um, Yeah, well, let's uh, let's hope it'll still remain a bit cold. But um, David, thanks a minute for joining us. I think people, A, have learned a lot about mullet mm-hmm. um, and a lot into it. And, you know, hopefully awareness of the fish as well in terms of uh, just, I suppose, general awareness of it as a species here in the Irish waters as well. Um, to be appreciated um, tight lines for the coming season David and um, I hope the, the conditions stay somewhat um, sedate <laughs> yeah we don't need to sedate we like a bit it's, it's angling adventures the clue's in the name <laughs> <laughs> exactly to remind people what's the what's the email again or the web address yeah anglingadventureswestcork.ie uh, perfect that's great David thanks a minute for joining us brilliant thanks guys love to chat to you Our thanks to David Norman for joining us on the show. And don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus, you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. Mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable. Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with Mayfly soon. And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tire, Jackie Mahan. If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes. If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.